Hi, I'm Sharad Kutin, uh, co-director of the Georgetown Literary Festival and senior anchor with Astro Awani Television. Uh, today, I'm joined by Professor Wang Gangwu, a historian because of, of great repute. Uh, Professor Wang, thank you so much for being part of the Georgetown Lit Festival. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. Well, you know, it's a great pleasure. You've got many books to your name, and uh, but today we focus on your most recent publication, Home is Where We Are. It's a sequel to your memoir, Home is Not Here, published in 2018. Home is Where We Are is published by the National University Press. Professor, I, I wonder if we can begin with the fact that this is a book that you uh, wrote with your late wife, Margaret Wang, and you speak about weaving... Um, her life into yours in this book. If you could tell us a little bit about that process and what it entailed, uh, weaving Margaret's life and your story in, in this book. Well, uh, really, the story is, goes back to the fact that neither of us were thinking of writing our memoirs. Margaret wrote something for her children, for our children, uh, many, many years ago. And uh, she wrote so well, the children loved it and uh, enjoyed reading the story kept on asking her to write more and eventually uh, turned around to me and said, how about you? Uh, I had never thought of writing my memoirs either, but uh, they uh, continued to ask me and uh, eventually I, I thought, okay, I'll do this. I'll do something. I uh, listened to, I, I read what Margaret wrote and then I uh, wrote about my own childhood. Essentially, my story simply was about how I grew up in Malaya, in Ipoh, and how I went to China and why I came back. And I ended the story there. Uh, eventually, that was uh, published uh, because I was persuaded it was worth publishing. And uh, after I did that, then the people began to encourage me to write a continuation. What about what? What about the time you were in University of Malaya? You came back to Malaya, you, you joined the university, and this was uh, uh, the start of a new life. Uh, isn't that interesting? Why don't you write about that? So I thought about that, and I decided maybe I should. And when I started doing that, started doing that, uh, I began to I reread what uh, Margaret had written. And, of course, Margaret's story had covered, covered that later period. Uh, which which I was now uh, starting to do, and uh, when I was writing my my story, it occurred to me that actually Margaret's story was so woven with my own. I mean, we just we we after all shared all that together, and that uh, really we should you know tell the story together in some way. Uh, I do I did not know how, but I thought I'd ask her. And we just talked about it, and uh, she was persuaded that yes, uh, her story and my story did have uh, much to that we shared, and therefore it was worth trying. And so I persuaded her to let me pick and choose the parts that would that would fit in, you know, dovetail with my side of the story, and uh, see how it went. And thus we we went on. Um, she, she let me do the selection. I did the selection. And then she I read it to the, her. She went through that. She thought some of it was too much detail about the family. Uh, eventually, what we did was we consulted our children. And our children also shared 
the job of sorting out what to include and not to include. And finally, when we finally agreed on the text, I had the whole thing uh, ready and read it all to Margaret and she agreed to it all before I, I, I finalized the manuscript. And that was how we did it. We, we had no particular plan to do it together. It just ha- happened that as I wrote, it was quite clear that Margaret and I shared so much, and so much as she had written uh, was already uh, talking about things that I was going to write about. So it seemed to me the, the best thing to do, not to tr- write it as jointly, because a lot of the story is really only about me, uh, So, but to write it in such a way that we could really fit in her side of the story and my story and make them in make the, the two parts, as it were, somehow become one. I don't know how much we've succeeded, but that's what we try to do. I mean, Professor, that's an extraordinary, uh, it's extraordinary on so many levels. One that both you uh, as a historian and your wife, having lived through uh, an amazing century, the 20th century, uh, would, uh, on one hand, not think to write your memoirs. I mean, it seems that you as a professional historian might in fact rely on memoirs of other people and documents, uh, you know, and I'm sure you're very grateful that those individuals recorded their time. Why did, why was writing your memoir something that didn't, didn't come sort of naturally to you or sort of something that you thought would be um, the natural outcome of both your, your history and, uh, and, you know, uh, your profession? Well, I guess I never thought about it because I was uh, busy doing so many things. There were so many interesting things that I was still doing uh, all these years. Uh, after Hong Kong, I came to Singapore and I was involved in so many new institutions here and building them up and had some wonderful colleagues and continually learning about what was happening uh, to, to the region, to Southeast Asia, to China, to the United States and to the relationship between the powers and to the world, the way the world was globalized at such a tremendous speed. There was so much to learn, and we were, my colleagues and I were doing so much together that it never occurred to me that I would have to write, I would write my own story. I mean, I, I was uh, kept very busy just trying to keep up with what was happening. Uh, Professor, I mean, just for the, uh, for the knowledge of our audience, you just celebrated your 90th birthday, and so happy birthday to you. Um, I, I want to ask you something, maybe on a little more philosophical level, which is that we're all participants in life. I mean, when we go through life, perhaps, you know, many of us unthinking uh, or not reflecting deeply about our times. But there you are, a participant of life, but also a historian who observes, who discerns patterns, who documents the times. How do you weave that together in a personal story? How does that level of, you know, us just walking through life and then also thinking critically about it, how does that come together for you? Well, it was greatly helped by the fact that I had lots of very interesting colleagues asking me different questions. And it depends on what I was trying to do. For example, if I was asked to write uh, an essay about some historical figure in Chinese history, or some aspect of Chinese revolution or something like that, then I wrote it as a historian and as a scholar who looked up the sources and checked my facts 
and try and get a story right. And what what have I got to say that was new? And what what did I have to say that was worthwhile listening to or, or reading? So that was one part of me. But at the same time, of course, every day I was working in an environment, and it's hard now to to describe. The University of Malaya was just being built. Uh, it, it started in Singapore, but when I went up to Kuala Lumpur, when the university was really built from ground up, and we were starting with uh, absolutely nothing, with the first buildings, with the first students, with colleagues, setting up departments, setting up. Every bit of university had to start afresh. Although we used the University of Malaya in Singapore as a kind of a, a base a model, but at the same time, we were trying to meet different needs of, of uh, the, the, the Malaya that was being uh, built around Kuala Lumpur, which has a different culture, different political culture from that of Singapore. So all that had to be uh, sort of digested by all of us while we were trying to build this new university. So this was a very exciting time. And of course, while I, while I was doing all that, uh, it, it, never, it never occurred to me that there was a difference between what I was doing professionally as a historian for my own career and what I was doing for, in a way for, for the country to build a new university. And we saw it a kind of national university who would serve the purpose of providing, producing the kind of graduates the country would need to make it into a modern nation. Um, and this was a very exciting enterprise. And I think all of us were deeply, deeply engaged in what was to us a remarkable opportunity to build a new country. And the excitement was shared all around. But frankly, it was so exciting that almost every minute was something to, 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 to savor. Did, Professor, uh, did you take notes during that time? I mean, as you were living through this history, uh, were you documenting it as well? Well, I never did it systematically, but of course, here and there, I would jot down notes for to, to, to help me remember something from day to day. I didn't have a proper diary, but I had some uh, little diaries for uh, appointments and so on, and I, I would jot down little notes to remind myself what I had uh, talked about or remind myself what to talk about. All these things uh, scattered about, but the, although I don't, I don't have a complete set of it, and I never found enough of them to make a, a really continuous story. Uh, they helped me to remember things which uh, which happened because by jot by jotting it down, it already registered in my mind. And I have to say that all this was done a few years ago when my my memory was much better than it is now. But anyway, these things were also things I talked about from time to time because I have many friends from those days, and we do have times when we. Whenever we met, we would talk about the things we used to do. And, uh, of course, each time I did that, uh, it would come back and uh, it helped me remember not only the people concerned, but the issues that were exciting to us and the kind of problems that the country faced. And indeed, you know, when you look back on it, Malaysia faced fantastic problems, internal as well as external at that time. It was the beginning, of, on the one hand, of the Cold War. It was, a, it was a Vietnam War, a hot war in the neighborhood. There was this tremendous struggle between the Soviet Union and its allies and partners and the United States and its allies and partners in, in the Southeast Asian region. And many, many of our own people were involved, taking sides in the matter, debating among ourselves, and very concerned about how all this would affect the building of this new nation. How would this new nation really 
emerge out of all these debates, what kind of nation is it going to be? And so these are the kind of questions we're actually engaged, I think, most of us, all the, almost all the time. Uh, Professor, what I remember of your first book, Home is Not Here, I mean, at least in terms of the memoirs that you've written, um, that uh, it really is a portrait of you as a child and subject to uh, the decisions of your parents in their understanding of the world, you know, whether you should uh, return to China or leave China, as the case may be. But in this memoir, in this uh, book, Home is Where We Are, you're really an adult and you're in, in some ways in full control of the choices you make. Uh, but is that true? I mean, for, philosophically, are we, all, are we all completely in control of the choices we make, even as adults? I think there's definitely something to that because what with my with my first period as up to my age of nineteen, uh, I really just accepted what my parents thought was what we all had to do. I never questioned it. I thought this was something that uh, my was terribly important to my parents, and they assumed that I would go along with whatever they did. And it never occurred to me not to go along with them. That was uh, as simple as that. But of course, once I came back to Malaya, even my father knew perfectly well, it has to be me who make up the future. That's my future now. What he did, however, he did actually made it possible for me to do that. Because what he did was, when he brought, came, uh, asked me to come back, he realized that he was taking me away from a university education that I was really enjoying and very much benefiting from. So he wanted me to continue to study. But how could I study? He couldn't afford to send me abroad. So the only chance was, and he, and he was quick to realize this because he worked for the Ministry of Education, he realized that the, the country was planning this new university called University of Malaya in Singapore. And that my school certificate, which I got from an Anderson, Anderson School Depot, would qualify for me to apply for a place in that university. So what he did was he... He was so anxious that I would continue with my higher education. He did make it possible for me to do that, to make it absolutely clear that I could do that, was to, was to get me to register, to apply for federal citizenship. Uh, and that, at that point, just something new in the Federation of Malaya. Now, that was important because I was foreign-born. My passport was a Chinese passport. The government that gave me that passport that was about to collapse in China, uh, I was basically stateless, at least uh, that was what he, he was afraid of. Uh, how, how could he be sure that I would get a place in the University of Malaya as a stateless Chinese uh, of a country that was about to turn communist I mean, at a time of the emergency in the Malaya? Uh, these were very tricky times. So I think in that sense, he made it possible for me to actually start afresh by getting me, because I just barely qualified to apply for federal citizenship, and he got me to apply. I mean, that I did not, I did not initiate that. He initiated it. He actually told me that it would be a good idea to apply for federal citizenship to help me get into the university. I don't think he was thinking about any Malayan nation building or any big something like that. He was simply wanting to make sure technically that it would, at least there would be no obstacle to my being considered impartially for the place in this new university. That, to him, 
was terribly important because he felt he owed that to me, having forced me the way forced me to come back from China from a university that I was enjoying very much. So he wanted to make sure that I would get a second a second start, and that he succeeded in doing because the day I entered the university was just a month after I received my papers as a federal citizen, and that really was a, a completely new start. Now that was something that my father did enable, but thereafter. He left it entirely to me what to do with my life. I mean, all he, all he expected of me was to go on studying. Mm, professor, was that freedom that you had personally dizzying? I mean, it must be terrifying to be 19 and instead of drift, you know, in a, in a tumultuous world. I mean, a world where perhaps, you know, there weren't as many certainties. I mean, you're talking, we would, as you just mentioned, China was a country that was changing its very character. Um, many, of, many of us don't live through those uh, moments. Uh, how did it feel to you personally to, to be in that space and in that time? I had a very tough time in that first few months after my return. I did say something about that in, at the last chapter of my first book, Home is Not Here, how I really realized that I was in a precarious position I didn't know what I was going to do. I wasn't at all sure. And the, my only hope, as I saw it at the time, was to get into the University of Malaya. And that would have, that would have given me a new start. And of course, as it turned out, it, it turned out very well. Now, I was helped by the fact that I did, after all, go to Anderson School. In other words, a regular, officially recognized school of the new Malayan na nation. And this was set up by the British. And uh, we had, okay, I had a Cambridge school certificate. Um, my classmates were already at either Raffles College or the King Edward VII College of Medicine studying in Singapore. And they, they were, they, the two parts, those two colleges were joining together to become the University of Malaya. So I had some classmates from school who were already two years my senior in Singapore. So at least I could identify with what was happening in Singapore. That gave me a chance to reframe uh, my, my way of my looking at Malaya, look at it differently, not as a place that I was about to leave to go back to China, or, or, and a, but as a place which was starting afresh and I was, I, was, I was now eligible to be part of that new start. Now that was an exciting possibility. It opened my mind to the possibility of joining my friends in doing something that we would have something to share. And I, I think uh, as I, in this second book, I talk about my early months in the University of Malaya, they were a real major turning point in the way I looked at the world. It suddenly opened up all the possibilities, the exciting opportunities that were offered to all of us to be part and parcel of something so new and something that was a, 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 a question mark in almost everybody's mind. Nobody knew exactly what this country was going to be like. We all thought that if we tried, we could actually have a part in shaping it. And that was how some of us imagined it was possible. But at least that very thought alone, I think, gave a lot of the, all of us, gave us a chance to feel that we had some very important work to do. We have a great opportunity and we should get on with it and, and make sure that we are uh, prepared to be part and parcel of this new new enterprise. Uh, Professor, do you think, and I know this is going to sound slightly unscientific, but 
do you think you were lucky? And, and, and if so, what constitutes, you know, luck in, in historical terms? Oh, I have always considered it very lucky. I have never doubted that it, luck plays a very big part in a, in a human being's life. In fact, this, of course, is not just me. It is something actually deeply in, in Chinese culture itself. The Chinese culture has certain foundations which are very interesting to me. First of all, the Chinese actually believe in change. Nothing is forever. Everything can, will change. In fact, it is normal to expect change. But when things change, it offers both opportunities to do better, improve your position, but it also offers traps for you to fall into and, and become much worse. So these are things which you, you have to prepare for to some extent. You don't know what the changes are going to be like, but you're prepared for change and you look out for and what you call luck. What do, what do I mean by that? I think the Chinese, what the Chinese mean by luck is that every human being has a store of luck that was given, given as it were, on, 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 at birth, that we all had some luck in our lives that we must take full opportunity of when it comes to you. But how to recognize it when it does, ah, that is a different matter. Different people respond differently. For example, they would believe that uh, if you prepare yourself looking up for, for chances, for new opportunities to get things done, then luck goes by and provides you with some opportunity to move in the direction that you that would bring bring good luck, good good progress in your life, and you recognize it, you see it coming, you see identify that piece of luck as an opportunity, and you seize it and do your best with it, and that is what you do with it. So luck is something that happens, but you could miss it. It could happen to you, and you you can go past you, and you don't identify it, you don't know that it happened, and you miss the opportunity, and that's too bad. But if you can seize the opportunity and make the most of it, you have a very good chance of doing very well. Now, in my case, I have no doubt luck was a major factor in my life, not once, but several times. I don't think I, I always picked the right, uh, I saw the luck that I needed, but most of the time, I think, but I saw the opportunity and I knew this was a bit of good luck for me. I seized it and did what I could, did my utmost to make it work for my, to improve my own position, to make my, our lives, my family, myself, make ourselves happier and, and, and generally take advantage of the luck given to me and make the most of it. I think this is built partly into the culture itself and I'm very much part of that culture. Professor Wong, do you think that in the life of nations, and but today we can even talk about, you know, the trajectory of the planet, that we have had missed opportunities? And I'm thinking specifically of the history of this country, of Malaya, of Malaysia. Uh, and you've observed those, as you put, debates and discussions about the, the nature of this nation. Do you think there have been missed opportunities that we We've been, we're a lucky nation, as some people said, I believe Tunkur Abdurrahman said, of Malaysia, of himself as Prime Minister of Malaya, uh, that we, we miss those opportunities. Well, it's, uh, this is where you have to, you're asking me as a historian now. As a historian, I cannot be sure which are the ab absolute missed opportunities 
and what could have been done better if another, a different decision had been made at the time. For example, take the, take the very obvious case of uh, May 13th in 1969. I mean, I wasn't here, but I mean, as a historian looking back at it and say, well, that happened. It was tragic. It was very sad. But the decisions that were made, were they the best decision? Were that the correct decision? Was it, could, could we have done otherwise and made other decisions? Ah, that is a big question mark. And as a historian, I would not be able to say just like that what, what might have been better. All I can say is that whatever decision was made was made with certain objectives in mind. And the question is, were those objectives justified? And were they fair? And were they the right things to do? And did the people who took the decision do the do their utmost to make it work for the best interests of everybody in the country? Then, then I have judgments to make. I would have to say that some of those decisions were made only to satisfy some people, and definitely this this had uh, handicapped other people. And to that extent, it was not a fair. They were not fair decisions. There may have been emergency matters which required urgent decision, and maybe maybe the leaders themselves simply made a mistake and were not deliberate. But otherwise, had they made deliberate decisions to achieve what they thought was their own interest, then there are factors which no historian can avoid trying to make a judgment based on the facts that we can find out, the kind of documentation that we have. I don't know that we have adequate documentation of that a particular period, but I have noticed how many people did have tried to look at that period again and again to see what it was that happened that made it necessary for those decisions to be made and whether those decisions were actually carried out and implemented in a way that really benefited all the people in the country. These are, these are historical questions. I don't think this is a question of luck then. It's a question of uh, decisions made by those responsible, those who had the power to do so, and when they did so, what were their purposes, what were their goals, and to what extent those goals were meant to benefit all or benefit only some. Professor, you know, in this book, you, you cover a very heady period, uh, perhaps, you know, some people would argue the kind of crucible of uh, the, the emerging nations. And we thought it was going to be one nation, Malaysia. It's, you know, it's turned into two nations, Singapore and Malaysia. And, and today, the Malaysian Federation is under tremendous pressure with, uh, with political voices demanding a, um, a 1963 in the Malaysian Agreement to be revisited. But behind all these large movements are also individuals. And many of the people that you went to university with uh, became decision makers. Could you tell us a little bit about the atmosphere, the intellectual atmosphere of the university when you were there, as you said, building it? Uh, and how much of that uh, did you want to convey in your book? Well, I think it, my book actually makes it quite clear where I stand on that one. I genuinely believed that Singapore and the Malay states and the Federation of Malaya was really one country, and it was a country called Malaya. I believed that for a long time, and I hoped that uh, when it was achieved through the uh, special arrangement with East Malaysia, Sabah and Sarawak, that the idea of Malaysia would still enable the original idea of Malaya to work. Uh, I was a little less confident, but at least I believe that that was uh, enable, to enable Singapore and Malaya to be part of one country was a positive uh, a, a development in, in the history of our country. 
And when it did not happen, or, what, what, or rather when it failed after less than two years and uh, Singapore was separated, now the decision to separate Singapore from Malaysia, now that could be itself analyzed in different ways. Uh, behind it all, you might say some of, some people would argue quite correctly that very they were very rational decisions. At the time, there was probably no better decision for the country as a whole because the danger of uh, racial uh, uprisings and so on, if they had forced Singapore to become a, di- a different kind of state, all these things were speculated on at the time. And so in, in retrospect, you can say that there were good reasons why the separation had to occur once things went wrong. But then you can go back and say, why did they go wrong in the first place? Each step of the way, decisions were made by different leaders for different reasons. And looking back, I think there are many, many questions which do not have straightforward answers. I would have to say that each of those leaders made their decisions based on their understanding of what was in the best interest of the country. But in the end, the net result was something that, for me anyway, and for many fellow Malayans at the time, was a, was a very sad mistake. To have Singapore separated from Malaya was not the best decision and was something that I think should be a matter of regret. And finally, Professor, as we kind of round up this uh, interview, uh, we come back to the book. Could you say something about your sense of your personal sense of purpose? Uh, this You've lived a long life and you've been extraordinarily prolific and uh, you've had an impact and you're leaving a legacy. Uh, what does it all mean for you? And uh, what would you like it to, what would you like other people to take away from this book of yours? Oh, I, I don't know about others, but let me put it this way. I, my final decisions uh, all stem from the fact I made a very early rec- uh, understanding of my own personal nature. I found myself not a person who was really a political activist. I was not interested in politics per se. I was very much interested in scholarship. I was very much, I I became more and more interested in history and more interested in becoming a good scholar and a teacher. Most of all, I wanted to be a university teacher. And behind it all is a very simple decision that I made in the 1950s when I was still in Singapore at the University of Malaya. And that the university provided one a wonderful place, a home for intellectual activity, for satisfying curiosity, for enabling me to learn. And the libraries, the academic colleagues, my fellow students, all of them contributed towards the sense of, of achieving something, to learn about the world and to learn in order to satisfy my def- desire to be a good teacher so that I can share my knowledge with my students and then share my writings to anybody who will read them so that I can do this was the most satisfying thing in life. When I decided that, and this was well before uh, I became a teacher, when I decided to devote myself to scholarship, that actually laid the foundations of of all my later decisions. Because every other decision I made later on, whether I was in public or in private or in the university and elsewhere, they all hinged ultimately on my desire to be a great teacher I hope I wanted to be who base whose knowledge will be accepted, will be uh, uh, able to work freely, work in universities in which the freedom for intellectual curiosity, 
to be able to contribute to knowledge and to be able to share that knowledge with generations of students. That was, to me, the ideal world. It's a very simple world, but it's a world without any involvement in public affairs and politics per se, except as a, as a keen observer, of course, I watched it happen. But to me, my own abilities were, were very limited to the, those of wanting to be a good teacher and therefore must learn enough to enable me to do the teaching that people want, uh, people would appreciate. And that to me was my driving force in what I did in my life, with my life. Thank you so much, Professor. That, that was wonderful. And thank you again for being part of the Georgetown Lit Festival. Thank you. I appreciate the chance to talk. Thank you. Thank you.